Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is the seventh episode of the podcast where we take the complex issue of collapse and try and break it down, make it a little more simple. Before we dive in, I wanted to mention our Twitter account again, at CollapsePod. I want people to be able to reach out with questions, feedback, or ideas about the podcast. And so that's a great way to do it. You can always send us a DM. Again, it's at CollapsePod on Twitter. So Kellen, at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that today's topic is going to be political turmoil. And what can happen when politics start to fall apart? Yeah, and ever since you mentioned that, I've had a whole range of emotions. I feel like particularly right now, everywhere I look, everything is all about what's going on in politics. And it's such a heated mess that I'm a little bit nervous about what direction you plan on taking our conversation today. Yeah, and this is not a political podcast, right? You and I have our own personal political opinions. And the goal here is not to make those known necessarily. The reason we're even talking about politics in a context like this is to understand how it fits in with the whole dynamic of collapse. And so while our own political leanings will probably come out eventually, for now, we're going to try and keep that out of the conversation and just talk about how this is just one more thing that increases the likelihood of collapse. Also, I want to mention that while the published date for this episode is November 4th, 2020, we like to record our episodes a couple weeks in advance. So while you, the listener, may already know what happened last night, November 3rd, we don't yet. And the truth is, there probably won't be a final decision out for weeks, if not months. And so for that reason, we're not really going to discuss the current election. I think the current events happening in politics are very important, and it's something that we'll discuss later on. But for now, we're just going to stick to the overall condition of our political system. Okay, perfect. Let's dive in. 
So last episode, I mentioned that everything is the way that it is because of decisions that have been made up to this point by people. Everything we're living is man-made from our economic structures to the environmental situation to our financial system to our political structure. It's a bit of a paradigm shift to realize how all these things are relatively new to humans with just a small fraction of our existence being in complex societies. History is fraught with examples of our experiments in each of those areas failing. When I say that it's humans' decisions that have brought us to this point, I think it's safe to say that it's not the unanimous decisions of all humans, but rather the decisions of humans who we have allowed to be in charge, and that's through our political systems. Throughout most of human history, like in simple societies, those decisions were made by leaders of small communities, and the consequences of those decisions fell on just those communities. But as we began to be more complex, it required that our political systems become way more complex as well. So instead of having just like a single leader be in charge of making all the decisions, there began to be layers of decision makers, each reporting to someone higher up than them until it ultimately rested upon the person at the top. So we know those as hierarchies, with the person at the top wielding all the power. So the question is, where do they get that power from? Like, what allows them to be in charge? And because they are ultimately making all these huge decisions that shape our entire lives and our futures, pretty important that we have the right people doing the job. So their power comes from legitimacy, which is the belief of the people that their ruler is valid and that the political system is operating the way that it should. So really, in the end, we're the ones that give our political leaders their power. Joseph Tainter, who we've talked about before, has a book called The Collapse of Complex Societies, and he talks about something called the sacred aura of the center, which basically just means that it's this almost religious respect that we give our political systems and our unifying beliefs. So in the U.S., for example, to me, you know, we rally around this idea of freedoms and liberty, right? And we give all the credit for that to the founding fathers, and the institutions of government that they created and that have sprung from it to this day. We stand and hold our hands over our hearts. We take our hats off out of respect as we pledge allegiance to the flag or you know, sing the national anthem. And so we're used to just doing those things almost as like habits or rituals. But when you really stand back and look at it, they sure do kind of feel like a religion. You know, many view Washington, D.C. as this kind of holy ground. And so our collective respect of that sacred aura of the center is what allows our government to have that power and that legitimacy to rule, to make decisions for us. Okay, so when you talk about the legitimacy that we give our government and our leaders, it kind of makes me think of the book Animal Farm. Have you ever read that? I haven't, actually. It's an absolute classic. And it's something that I read back in middle school. And I remember that it really impacted me. Spoiler alert, the pigs become the leaders, but it it tells the path of how power is seized and how leaders in that case gained their credibility from the people or the animals. How did we get to this point where we have such a sacred aura? Like, why do we give our leaders so much credibility? So Joseph Tainter, when he talks about the sacred aura, he actually mentions that most governments do start out religiously there is actually a religious tie to that leadership. And that is what drives people to be loyal to that government. And over time, 
what usually happens is the religious part of it and the secular part of it have to separate. And when it does, that can tend to cause conflicts and problems. But that sacred aura that the government was able to establish initially sticks around. So in my mind, a religious tie to the founding of a government isn't necessarily a bad thing, and especially if it creates the kind of loyalty that helps unify a nation. But help me understand what you mean when you say that like at some point they have to split like the religious aspect or the religious tie to a founding of a government and the government itself. Like why can't that just continue on? So I think it's about power. You know, if there were 20 of us on an island and I wanted to be the one in charge, no one's going to really respect my authority unless it comes from something that we can all agree on. And so if we felt that it was divinely appointed for me to be the leader, then that authority would be respected. But as time goes on and our population grows and I'm able to now have police or armies or ways of maintaining my power that are outside of that religious belief, it doesn't matter anymore if you believe I'm divinely appointed because you're not going to be able to take that power away from me. But along those lines, once I start to do that, you become disenchanted with me as your leader, right? So in almost all societies, the shininess of that sacred aura starts out bright, but over time, as that government matures, that sort of squeaky clean shininess of the aura begins to fade. And corruption creeps in, takes hold to such a degree that institutional changes are actually able to be made in the political structure to ensure that that corruption can continue in perpetuity. So in the United States, the voting system is rigged, I believe, in such a way that it ensures that only the most corruptive parties can win and that only candidates who are corrupt can be placed in power. And this just perpetuates an ongoing system of corruption. So I do want to hear more about that. But I just want to make the comment that when it comes to that sacred aura that you've talked about, that almost religious respect for government, it makes me think of these tragic stories I hear about all the time in some of these like African countries where it is just continual civil war. And one year this group is in power and then there's a coup and this other group is in power and nobody has any respect for the government because there's not that same loyalty and devotion that comes from believing something is divinely appointed, right? If, if I just know the government that's in place now is only in place because they seize that power through force, then I'm only going to respect out of fear and not out of actual trust. So when it comes to that trust, now I hear you talking about corruption and the corruption you see in the government. I'd love to hear more of what you mean by that. Yeah, great point. So for example, have you ever voted third party before? Actually, I have. And I just did it based on principle. I knew that it wouldn't make any difference. Yeah, so why do you feel like it didn't matter? It's a bipartisan system, so only a Democrat or a Republican can win, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the way that it has been intentionally set up to be. I've also voted third party before and made the mistake of telling someone that I did that and like immediately getting reprimanded because how dare I throw away my vote? Because a vote for that person was a vote for the other party, right? And that's ridiculous, but our system is set up in a way that says if you vote for anyone but the two choices that are placed in front of you from the Republican or Democrat Party, then you're throwing away your vote. So there are other options, right? There are viable options for better ways to do our voting. You know, Without the Electoral College, whether it's through a popular vote or whether it's through something like the ranked choice voting, if you don't know what that is, I'll post a link to a video about it in the description. But essentially, there are way more fair ways to do this, but it has intentionally been set up in a way to undercut and undermine our ability to choose and have a voice. When it comes to things like lobbying, I feel like lobbying is just 
one of the most corrupt, worst things about America. The fact that if you have a lot of money, you can essentially buy policies to be put into place. There's another video that I'm going to link here. It's just a YouTube video that talks about how little of a voice the average American actually has towards any policy change and how much of a voice wealthy people do have, strictly because they're able to lobby. When it comes to capitalism and its interests, they do not amount to the interests of the poor. They do not amount to environmental interests. And so what do they amount to? It's all money. And so money talks... And because of this system, those in power and those with money will do whatever they have to to stay there, no matter who it affects negatively or how it negatively affects the earth. So future episodes can be dedicated to this. There's so much to go into when it comes to this type of stuff. But in my opinion, we have an incredibly corrupt system, and that corruption can affect the way that people view the legitimacy of our leaders. Yeah, well, you can see why. If everyone feels like the government is corrupt, then again, it erodes that trust. And at the same time, it erodes how legitimate you feel the system and the government itself is. Yeah. And when that legitimacy is questioned, it can begin a downward spiral for political systems. Perhaps one of the biggest ways in which these systems destroy themselves is by allowing too big of a gap between the wealthy and the poor. And that's been seen a lot throughout history. Like, for example, probably the most notable one would be the French Revolution. And as a matter of fact, some recent research done just last year by Cambridge University shows that in developed countries, people's satisfaction with democracy has decreased dramatically. In the U.S., for example, since 1995, satisfaction has dropped from 75% of people being satisfied down to less than half. Or in other words, a majority of people in the United States are disenchanted with our current political system. I can't imagine how much worse it's gotten just this last year of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic, how it's been handled, and the economic problems that have come from it as well. So that whole idea is explained in another book. This one's called Dark Age America. It's written by John Michael Greer, who we've mentioned briefly in other episodes. The whole book is fantastic, and I'm just going to focus on one part of the political chapter, but I definitely recommend checking out the rest of that, which explains the whole process of catabolic collapse from beginning to end. So Greer says that there are two classes. There's the ruling class and the laboring class. The ruling class is full of the elite who, in a mature society, are picked out by other elites who are already established in the system. They're picked for their loyalty. They're picked for their parents' money. They're picked for their willingness to go along with what they've been told to do. And so they're rigid supporters of the status quo, and that creates kind of this large buffer of elites surrounding the rulers which makes the system appear even more legitimate and therefore gives society stability because that status quo is perpetuated. The problem with that, though, is even though it's stable, in times of crisis, it is really difficult to make changes. I mean, think about our bureaucratic red tape of our systems. It is incredibly difficult to be able to make changes rapidly. And those drastic and rapid changes can be necessary to avert disaster. So the elite often believe that they have things firmly in control and that they can never be motivated to really make those necessary changes, and that makes the system vulnerable. They also believe that they have the status quo so firmly in their grasp that people will never require anything else. And historically, that is the crucial error that they make, is having that overconfidence. Right now, we live in a system where wealth disparity is growing crazy fast. 
We don't have time in this episode to cover that in detail, and I hope to do an episode on it later on. But I am going to link again to a video in the episode description that gives a general idea of the immensity of the problem in our wealth disparity. So you can go check that out yourself. But at this point, there are two critical problems that the ruling class face. The first is that the established corruption means the wealth disparity continues to grow and that people risk becoming more and more disenchanted by the government. That sacred aura is fading completely. The second is that in a system being affected by catabolic collapse, the amount of available wealth to spread around becomes less and less. So as programs are being cut and the budget slashed, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, the actions taken there will nearly always disproportionately affect the poor and benefit the wealthy. Basically, as the pie gets smaller and smaller, the people at the top don't want to be the ones to get a smaller piece. Yeah, when you talk about the wealth disparity growing, I think we've mentioned this in a previous episode, but just during the pandemic, the billionaires have increased their billions by crazy amounts. And like you said, if it's people that have wealth, that are lobbying for certain policies that will allow them to continue to maintain their wealth or even grow it, then I can see why it's unlikely that that wealth disparity will ever decrease. Yeah, I think there's absolutely no way that it will. And in fact, it's going to probably continue to get exponentially worse. Now, you talk about coronavirus, a bit of new terminology that came up during this whole thing is this idea of an essential worker, right? This person that basically a member of the laboring class who the elite knows is necessary to keep the whole system moving. And yet most of those essential workers did not receive any extra benefits for being required to continue to endanger themselves during a global pandemic. And you've probably seen news articles or viral posts about those essential workers' discontent and sort of the unfairness of that burden. And so not only do the poor get less, but the burdens placed on them become greater and greater. Another way that's shown is that like the elite class create these large, inefficient, bureaucratic structures, right? And what that really does is separates them from having to do the work, but they still get to reap the benefits. And instead, the work in those bureaucratic agencies are then placed on the laboring class. When the benefits of being one of those laborers decreases, it's easier for those people to see that they're the ones propping the elite up and that the elites really are just parasites feeding off of the work they're doing. A great example of that would be like the American Revolution. We had those in the colonies doing all the work here and being taxed like crazy and all that money being sent back over to Great Britain. And they got to a point where the colonists realized that Great Britain were essentially, in this case, just parasites and that they didn't need them. And so they rose up to gain their independence and keep that money. All right, you mentioned the example of the American Revolution and that people got fed up to the point that they were willing to revolt. Where do you think that tipping point is? At what point is the burden enough that people won't take it anymore? Yeah, great question. So to answer that, I think we first have to understand that our political system is a form of capital, just like the other forms of capital that we've talked about, right? We've got our infrastructure we have all of our buildings and our roadways and all these different things. They're all considered capital. Well, just like those are capital, so is our political structure. And because it's considered capital, it also has a maintenance cost. So the laboring class is required in order to be able to pay the maintenance costs of capital on our political systems, which again is why that sacred R is so important. Survival of our system depends on a passive submission of the laboring class and it also requires active support of a subgroup of the laboring class that John Michael Greer calls overseers. 
so I promise I'm getting to answer your question here. But the overseers include police, include soldiers, the media, bureaucrats. Essentially, they are in charge of maintaining order among the laboring class. But they actually come from the laboring class as well. So they're essentially protecting the elites from members of their own class. But eventually that threshold is reached that you're asking about, where the laboring class are not receiving enough benefit and they're bearing too much of the burdens. Because that includes overseers who should be maintaining the order, they have to choose whether they're going to continue protecting the elites and get wrath from the people or stick to their own and take wrath from the elites. They know, though, that if enough of them stop protecting the elites, that no one's going to. And so to answer your question, that threshold is usually crossed somewhere around the point where people's basic needs to live are not being met. Okay, so when you first started explaining that, it sounded to me like in order for government to exist, there's a cost. That's where taxes come from. So maybe when taxes get high enough, that's the issue. Yeah, and I'll say that it's not just taxes. So when we talk about maintenance costs, the money part is important. But the support from the laboring class, like the actual them respecting your authority and giving you legitimacy, is actually also part of what you could call the maintenance cost as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So once I can't meet my own basic needs, basically out of desperation, that's when I'm willing to take action against those that would try to enforce my submission. Yeah, exactly. Once that threshold is crossed, people will be willing to trade the current system for anything else that will offer them more. Historically, that looks like revolutions, it could be civil war, balkanization of territories, or foreign takeover. And so obviously, none of those are good solutions for the elite if they want to maintain power. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, this is funny. I don't know if you want to talk about this if you'll even remember what I'm talking about here. But I remember at one point you telling me about some guy who had met with a bunch of wealthy people and they were trying to figure out how to keep their bodyguards loyal when things go bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to dig up that article and uh, I'll link it here so you guys can read it too. But essentially what it was was a consultant who worked with the ultra-rich on like investing their money into like future technologies. And he got contracted by a group to come and speak with them. And it was just when he got there, it was like these three or four guys who pretty much all they wanted to talk about was what was going to happen when the event went down and how they could protect themselves against their own bodyguards. So first of all, the fact that these ultra rich guys were calling it the event, they're basically just talking about collapse. And then secondly, that they were so worried about how to keep power 
over their bodyguards so that they didn't turn on them and kill them when it happened. It's just crazy to me. And I mean, the guy who wrote the article, the consultant basically just said, like, treat them well. <laughs> like, you know, normal, what we would think about as being a good idea. They were wanting to do things like put shock collars on them and dominate them in all these crazy ways. And so you can kind of picture our government maybe reacting in the same way. Like, as things start to get worse, how do we maintain our grip on that power? And they do have a few choices. So one, they can just ignore the situation. As things start to get worse, as people are, are unhappy, they can just pretend like nothing's wrong. And that is actually something that works for the government in the short term. But in the long term, that will inevitably end in disaster because things will continue to get worse. Second thing they can do is modest reforms. Basically, pittance, right? They can give just a little bit, just enough to people to keep them satisfied to maintain the status quo, to keep them alive, basically not allowing them to quite pass that threshold where they're willing to act out. An example of that happening historically would be like the New Deal, which we talked about last episode with Roosevelt. It was towards the end of the Great Depression and people were getting rather desperate. And so he came up with this New Deal that because of the resources that were available to us at that time, he was able to kind of dole out to the people. Unfortunately, in catabolic collapse, like we discussed, that's not really as much of an option. It would require instead that that pittance come from existing capital, which would probably mean it would come from the wealthy. And again, the wealthy are not willing to give up their piece of the pie. And the last option is that they can increase repression, which is something that we've seen in lots of countries all over the world. The problem with repression is that it costs a lot, which increases the maintenance cost of capital for social order. You know, you have to have secret police and surveillance and militarized vehicles more weapons, you know, and it in the end, it doesn't fix any of the problems that led to the unrest in the first place. And so in catabolic collapse, because it's more costly, it's something that cannot be maintained forever. Today, it seems like the government is taking the route of doing a little bit of all three of those things. In the midst of a major global pandemic, they are ignoring the severity of the problems or passing the blame on. You know, they're giving out $1,200 checks and a little extra unemployment, all while, like you said, enriching themselves and giving more money to the ultra-wealthy and they're using federal forces and militarized police to attempt to squash protests over social injustice. So I've got to say, when you frame it in that light, it starts to sound a little bit like some sort of a conspiracy theory. Like, hey, here's this group of elite that are trying to oppress everybody else and just maintain their power. And I'm sure some of that is going on, but I, I tend to think there are some people in power who are trying to make the situation better and are trying to improve the social injustices and make sure people have enough to survive on. So do you see it that way? Do you think it's just a big mix of motives? No, I, I agree. I think there are definitely people in the political system who are trying to do good. The problem is, is that the system is so big. And like I had mentioned before, corruption has been so institutionalized that the people who want to make changes for good in the end aren't able to do it. I don't think that there's a group of people, you know, in some dark room somewhere talking about how they can oppress us and how they can continue to make us poorer while they become richer. And our political system is set up in such a way that elites will fight against other elites to maintain power. But when that is threatened by someone who's trying to come up and take their own portion of that power, all the elites kind of gang up against them to make sure that the current status quo is maintained. It's not a conspiracy. It's not like 
they come together in agreement that that's what they're going to do. It's just the way that it works. So that's why, for example, you don't see third-party systems coming up and gaining a lot of steam because the Democrat and Republican parties like the way that it is. And because they're in power, that's just the way that it stays. So anyway, I agree. I think there's a lot of people trying to do good, but I also think that corruption is institutionalized to a degree that we aren't able to see positive change. And it makes sense to me that certain actions by the government could fulfill multiple purposes, right? For example, the stimulus check that you mentioned before, there could be some people who helped pass that that sincerely want to make sure people are taken care of. Well, at the same time, from somebody who's seeking to maintain power, it helps the people stay satisfied enough that they don't like, rise up and cause issues. So speaking of people rising up, you mentioned before that people will start to rise up once they get desperate enough. How close do you think we are to that? So the alternatives to our current system through like a revolution would likely still lead to worse conditions for many Americans than they currently have. So, you know, we still have a middle class that's getting by and even some of the lower classes have, at least for the moment, the pittance they need through welfare to survive. And so to a lot of people, revolution sounds overdramatic, right? And that's specifically the reason why we're not there yet. If you're listening to this and you've never wished for or considered the need for some sort of revolution, it's because you're likely in the middle class or among the poor who have consistent access to welfare. You're likely not one of the 40 million food insecure in the U.S. or one of the 8 million households who could face eviction and homelessness in January when the federal eviction moratorium ends, right? You probably aren't one of the nearly 18 million Americans who are considered to be in what's called deep poverty. It's not just poverty, but deep poverty. That means they're making less than half of the income considered to be poverty. For context, for a household of four to be considered in poverty, they would have to make $25,000 per year or less. That means one person in that household working for $12 an hour full-time and covering the cost of everyone in the household. Deep poverty means half that much. So one of those four people working full-time at $6 an hour. And 18 million Americans live in that type of a situation. And the way that John Michael Greer puts it, I've actually got a little section from his book here I'm going to read. He says, People tend to pay much more attention to whatever they are losing than to the even greater losses suffered by others. The middle-class Americans who denounce welfare for the poor at the top of their lungs while demanding for Medicare and Social Security to remain intact are a classic example of the type. So for that matter are the other middle-class Americans that denounce the absurd excesses of the so-called 1% while neglecting to note the immense differentials of wealth and privilege that separate themselves from those still further down the ladder. As I listen to that statement, it's almost a comment on human psychology. If I lose a dollar and you lose 10, I'm thinking a lot more about the dollar that I lost than the 10 that you lost, right? We're just maybe a little more self-centered that way. And I've also heard that when people think about how fairly they're compensated, they're almost always comparing up. Hmm. They're looking at people that make more than them and they're thinking, oh, I should be making more. Rarely are they thinking about all the people that they make more than. Exactly. And in this case, John Michael Greer is talking about how they actually tend to blame the poorer as well, right? Like, poor just need to get off their butts and work. All this welfare is coming out of my taxes and, and it's hurting me, right? Instead of actually having compassion and seeing the problem and realizing that the problem isn't coming from below, the problem is coming from above. 
And so that brings us to another reason why revolution, you know, may not happen here is that we play this blame game that we spoke about last episode where people just love to blame somebody else. And corrupt governments love for us to be distracted with this blame game and not realize what the real cause of those issues are. So the last reason that we don't have large enough movements to make a real difference here is because of something called bread and circuses. Have you heard that phrase before? It sounds familiar. So it's a phrase that came about during the Roman Empire, and basically it means that we allow ourselves to be distracted and kept docile by handouts, so like the bread, and useless entertainment, so circuses. During coronavirus, people have happily accepted their $1,200 pittance, right? And while being distraught that the movie theaters are closed, they've driven Netflix's stock up 64% this year, with some saying that it could actually double. So we stare at our smartphones, we spend time learning baseball stats, we keep up with the Kardashians. We're so distracted and kept kind of at bay that we don't really see the situation and we don't allow ourselves to become angered by it. Most of us are lucky right now that things seem okay and we're able to get by. But as catabolic collapse intensify, these things are going to get worse. And eventually that middle class will start to thin out and then it will disappear And in time, that threshold will be crossed for enough people that desperation will set in and some sort of action will be required. So then I guess let's talk for a minute about what sort of those alternative options are. If we say that at some point, people are willing to pretty much do whatever it takes to get what they need, what could that lead to? So when the situation gets bad enough, people are dying from not having basic needs met while the ultra-rich are still out living large, people will settle for much less than they would have had an earlier time. In the Roman Empire, for example, as things got considerably and consistently worse, the prospect of being overrun by or joining the barbarians was actually better than what their current situation was, as they could at least have their needs met. They could see the maintenance cost of capital for this new, simple system and realize that it would allow them better living standards than what they were currently enjoying. So some of them actually welcomed being overrun by a foreign enemy. You can also think back to like the 80s and 90s when Pablo Escobar was running 80% of the cocaine market. You know, many Colombians loved him and considered him much better than their government because even though he was the leader of this violent, murderous cartel, he also provided for the people. He improved many communities and he gave people what they needed while the government had basically abandoned them. So each society, as it encounters these same problems with catabolic collapse, will also hit their own thresholds where that power dynamic will inevitably shift and will accept whatever change comes. So I'm a little bit surprised this conversation has gone differently than I expected it to. When you mentioned we were going to be talking about political turmoil, I thought we'd talk a lot more about the political system. We did talk about it, but it shifted a lot to talking about the wealth disparity and how that gap is widening. But I can see that as people get more desperate and as they lose trust in the system or they don't give legitimacy to the government to the same degree that they did before, that's a pretty dangerous combination for a society. Right. And, you know, we live in America. And so we see things from an entirely American perspective. We have a lot of listeners who aren't from here, and I'm sure that will continue to increase as time goes on. And so I say that because in the end, it really doesn't matter what political system you have. What it really comes down to is power, where that power comes from and how, as a government, you're able to maintain that power. 
And when you think about elites today in power in not just ours, but in most mature governments, you can see how they simply cannot maintain that power infinitely into the future. Their power comes because we give it to them. If they try and maintain power through things like repression during a catabolic collapse, when repression is so costly, it's simply not going to last. And as people are disillusioned with the government and that sacred aura fades and disappears, then the legitimacy fades with it. Now, when it comes to the skills that the elites actually have, I mean, really, it's nothing more than having money, being able to manipulate, and knowing how to maneuver through a bureaucratic system. As catabolic collapse makes those bureaucratic systems unsustainable and they start to fall apart, elites are really left powerless, having lost support of the overseers that protect them. And this is a normal historical phenomenon. Just imagine taking Jared Kushner, for example, out of the White House and plopping him down in the middle of war-torn Syria without his money or his family connections and seeing how he would fare there as a leader. The powerful in a situation like that are the ones who know how to rile the people, to create armies that know military tactics, you know, that can earn the respect of the people. Those are the types of leaders that will rise during catabolic collapse, and it may or may not be through democratic means. We'll be more accepting of somebody if we feel that they can provide better for us than what we're receiving at the time, even if they're someone that currently we might consider to be abhorrent. So when it comes to the U.S. and what's going to happen here, it really, it's anybody's guess. Will a leader or organization rise up from within the country to you know, rile the people towards change? Or will people continue to be distracted by Democrats versus Republicans, left versus right, kind of like what we're seeing now, towards more and more escalating violence? You know, if you wonder how a civil war, for example, would look in the U.S., I would highly recommend listening to a podcast by Robert Evans, called It Could Happen Here. He's a journalist who has worked in Syria and other countries as they've devolved into their own civil wars, and he explains what it could look like for us. And it's not your classic idea of like North versus South lining up with guns in the fields, but rather a pretty insane mixture of guerrilla warfare, you know, militias, and people just trying to live their everyday life through it all. And what's fascinating is that he wrote it back in 2018, And in just a couple of years since, we've seen a lot of what he talks about already happening. After listening to it, you can't really help but view it as a real possibility. Yeah, I don't know at what point social unrest is something that you would consider a civil war. But I will say this year, as we've seen all the protests and the fact that so many of them have become increasingly violent, it does make me concerned that we could see something along the lines of what it sounds like you're describing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that America is going to see revolution or that America is going to see civil war. I'm simply putting out this idea that though many people see the government as this too big to fail machine, it's not necessarily so. And especially during catabolic collapse, we're not there yet. And I'm not going to pretend to know what that's going to look like. You know, in, for example, the Arab Spring in 2011, there were some countries that were successful in their revolutions. They overthrew their leaders and put someone better in in its place. But other countries during the Arab Spring, the unrest just created a power vacuum, and ISIS filled that vacuum, right? And so those countries became war-torn and went through a lot of devastation and still aren't out of that. You think of Syria and this huge, you know, migration crisis that they had. There's a lot of different outcomes to the choices that both politicians and people make 
during times of crisis. And I do think that in the coming decades, we're going to experience more and more of those crises, and it will be very interesting and fascinating to see what the outcome of those are. And I'll just say in relation to that example that you gave, I think sometimes we in America think of Syria as just this third world country, and they don't have a mature government, and it's always just kind of been a poverty-stricken, war-torn nation. But if I'm not mistaken, Syria at one point was a developed country, right? Yeah. And now you think of it and you look at pictures and it is just devastated. Like we mentioned a couple episodes ago, the steps the government will take during catabolic collapse could vary widely from them being as responsible as possible, truly trying to help the people, trying to improve the situation, to them acting out in self-preservation, accelerating collapse by waging wars or escalating blame into persecutions, causing humanitarian crises like genocide or mass migration. There's a whole range of different things that could happen based on the way that the politicians react. To a normal person, that would all look strictly like political choices and political upheaval, and people would likely be confused as to why it was happening. But to a collapseware person, we see it as the inevitable consequences of catabolic collapse happening in the background, dragging a government to its knees. To bring it all full circle... All the problems that we face in society are political ones because they require competent politicians to fix them. Watch the news any day at any time, and instead of seeing problems being solved, you're probably going to see petty bickering, blaming, self-preservation. All the while, people are watching and they're getting fed up as they watch their standards of living slip away. You know, this has been really fascinating to hear about. I feel like previous episodes, when we talk about like the financial system or the energy crisis, we've described a certain path that we are on. And it feels like you've kind of taught me in each one of those, hey, here's the exact destination that we're headed to. This one feels a little bit more like, well, it could go this route or it could go this route, right? It gives me a lot more to think about in terms of the direction I see things heading. But even like just barely when we were talking about Syria and the fact that they were a developed nation that is now in large part in shambles, it makes me realize that our government isn't too large to fail, that we're not just like insulated here. We're not entitled to a better outcome than anybody else. And with the way I see the political landscape right now, it makes me think perhaps more than anything else that we've talked about, this has potential to lead us to collapse quicker. Yeah, that's valid. Um, like other things we've talked about, catabolic collapse has an effect on the political landscape, but the political landscape all on its own could bring about collapse. And while we don't know the exact time frame, we do know the potential dangers that our political environment faces. Next week, we'll cap off these first eight episodes of sort of this core curriculum of collapse by talking about one of the biggest political failings of all time, and that is the problem of climate change. Even if none of the things we've talked about in these first seven episodes were true, climate change is a danger so big and with consequences so dire that it would bring about collapse all on its own. So don't miss it. Kellen and I are sure grateful for all the listeners to the podcast, and we have had a few listeners reach out and ask if there was any way to donate. Yeah, I think it's just awesome that people listen to the podcast, and that's enough for me. But we do spend this time trying to make it valuable for those that do listen. And I know that you, Corey, in particular, spend a lot of time doing research and trying to make sure this is meaningful. Yeah, and for that reason, if you'd like to donate, we've created a Patreon account. 
and you can find that in the episode description. Again, we appreciate you for listening, and thanks so much for any support you're able to give. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.